Okay, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be jumping all over the place today, so that's why we have the screen, or you can hop on uh, Uversion, the app, and be able to pull up all of our notes on there. But uh, kind of Matthew 12 will be the place that we really make the anchor of the whole message. We're in our series called Better Together, and the whole idea behind it is that we as people are not good. When we're alone, we need other relationships, and not just relationships with other people, but we need healthy relationships. And one of the things that Jesus says that that it pretty much redefines the way that we're to love and to interact each other, is he says that you're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I love when Jesus says this, one of the guys says, okay, so who's my neighbor? And Jesus redefines what neighbor is and basically says, everybody is your neighbor. Every single human on the face of this earth is now your spiritual neighbor and that you need to love them as you love yourself. You need to show them grace and compassion and mercy and do all the things for them that you would do like the neighbor who lives next to you and let's assume that you like that person. But that's the way that we're called to love absolutely everybody. But Jesus doesn't just redefine the way that we're supposed to love our our neighbors, but he also redefines uh, the way that spiritual family works for us. And as you know, as hard as it can be at times to love your neighbors, it's even harder to love your family. And the reason for that is because no matter how hard it is to love your neighbor, at the end of the day, they go back into their house and you go into yours. And you're separate from each other. You don't have to see them that much. You can even avoid them if you want to. But when it's family, like when you go home, they're there. There's no escape from family. Uh, this week, I'm like the dad of the world, probably. Like, this is what I'm doing. If you guys are looking to enter someone for Father of the Year, you can use this story when you put your submission in for me. Uh, my, I was teaching my son how to use an apple slicer. He's six years old, and he always wants, uh, you know, like Honeycrisp apples. So when at the store, I'm like, okay, you can go to college, or you can get that 10-pound bag of Honeycrisp apples. It's about the same price, and he always picks the apples. And so I'm always slicing them for him. Like, he's almost a man now. He's six, so I'm going to teach him to use the apple slicer. And I'm, I put my hands on top of his, and he pushes it down, cuts the apple. And I'm like, good job, Easton, like you did it. We're high-fiving. And then I turn to take care of my baby, and I hear him, ah! And I'm like, what? And I look, and he like, tried to push one of the pieces that didn't go all the way through and cut his thumb on it and had a little flap of skin hanging off. So I'm like, hey, Anna, because she's a nurse. I'm like, hey, Anna, can you help out Ethan real quick? Can you bandage up his thumb? It's not bad. It's a little bloody. It looks bad, but it's, it's, he's okay. And so she takes him in the bathroom, and she's taking care of his hand and doing the, hey, this is rubbing alcohol. It doesn't really hurt. Trust me. And like, like your nose grows. <laughs> and so she's taking care of that, and then I go to check and see how Ethan's doing. And as I go in there to see, uh, Anna has out some little surgical scissors, and she's going to cut the flap of skin off, right, so that she can bandage it up and it can heal right. And my relationship with my son is we're always just joking around and being stupid and teasing each other. So I walk into the bathroom, I see it, and I'm like, no, Mommy, don't cut off his thumb. <laughs> Ethan turns Jeremy white, which is like my color. <laughs> like, and he goes, why is it so hot in here? And then he just like crumples onto the floor and throws up. So I pick him up. I'm like, it's all okay, Anna. It's okay. We're good. We're good. Now, for all of you husbands, you understand this. There are only two looks that you understand from your wife. (laughs) One is the raised eyebrow. And the other one is the, like, you are the stupidest man on the face of the earth. 
what have you done? And she's giving me that look. It's not the raised eyebrows. It's like, what is wrong with you look? Here's the thing. If I was just her neighbor, it would be okay. She's like, you can never see my child again. You can never be in my home again because I can love you as my neighbor from afar with boundary lines that have been set up. But the problem for Anna was that I'm her husband. Like, we live in the same house. She's going to have to get back in bed with me at some point. Like, we have to work through this fact that I'm an idiot and that I've done something really stupid. It's hard to love family because you can't escape them. In a family, you have to work through conflict. You have to work through wronging each other. You have to work through brokenness and stupidity and everything else. When it's a neighbor, you have to love them, and it can be difficult, but it will never be as hard as it is to love your family. And so this is what Jesus does. He says, there's a way that you're called to love your neighbor, and everybody in this world is your neighbor, but you're also called to love your family in a deeper way. You're called to love your family in a harder way. And this is who your family is. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, it says, While Jesus was talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, Your mother and brother are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. What Jesus is doing is saying that, he doesn't just, that we don't just have an obligation to love those who are blood-related to us. We don't have an obligation just to love those who are part of our nuclear family. We have an obligation to them. Yes, we absolutely do. But he says that you're a part of a family that's so much bigger than what you ever thought. You're a part of a family that's so much bigger and so much more diverse and so much more beautiful than you've ever imagined. And it's every single person who has bent the knee to Jesus and has now become one of my disciples. If you are a follower of Jesus, then every other follower of Jesus all across the world, all throughout the course of time and into the future, every single one of them has become your family through Jesus Christ. And we have a call on our hearts, a call on our discipleship to be someone who loves every other believer like family. That's difficult. That's harder than just loving your neighbor. Because we're all messed up. Like, I'm real messed up. But every single one of us is. And if we were all perfect people, it would be really easy to love each other as family. But we're not. And one of the most beautiful things about the church, though, is that it is a family that has been joined together by the blood of Jesus Christ. None of us are natural daughters. None of us are natural-born sons. Every single one of us has been adopted into this family because of the goodness and because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. He looked on us when we were living as orphans, and he loved us, and he adopted us, and he made us his own, and he joined us together as one big family, and we're called to love each other just like we're supposed to love family. Because we're all 
adopted into this family, though, what it means is that we don't know the house rules, that we don't know how it is that God wants us to love each other and what the rules are for living together in family. It's something that we have to learn. It's something that has to be taught to us so that we can live out the culture of the kingdom of heaven that God has called us to. And so this morning, I just want to go through a few. This is not exhaustive, but these are some of the rules that have to define the way that we live together and that we love each other as family. And number one, it's a commitment to the family. So every relationship is only as strong as the commitment that exists inside of it. That's why marriage is the strongest relationship that there is. Because the way that God created it is that's a covenant relationship where one man and one woman say, for the rest of my life, I'm going to forsake everyone else. And it doesn't matter your brokenness. It doesn't matter your insecurities. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you've done, what's been done. Like, we're going to overlook all of these things and we're going to cling to each other. We're covenanting with God that until our last days that we are going to love each other. It's a commitment that isn't ever meant to be broken. That's the way God designed marriage to work. Uh, God, when he says uh, about his commitment to us, why do we know that God is so faithful and why is he so committed? Because he reveals in scripture, he says, I have a passionate commitment to my people. He is all in for us. He's all in to the point of going to the cross and dying for every single one of us. Our families, it's a strong commitment that exists. I tell my children every single night before they go to bed, I say, I love you and I'll always love you because you're my son or because you're my daughter. I want them to know that my love for them isn't based on anything that they're doing. It's not based on anything that they've done. It can't be disqualified by anything that they do. That I have a love for them because love is a commitment to them. And so what we have to understand is that there has to be a commitment to this global family that we have. That we can't decide uh, that we're going to be out on this. Like We have a forever family that we've been adopted into. We have a forever love from our Father. Nothing's ever going to change the fact that He's our Father. But we also have a forever commitment to our brothers and our sisters in this family because nothing will ever change the fact that they are our brothers and that they are our sisters. And with family, you ever notice you don't get to switch families? You might not have liked the family that you were born into, but you don't get to switch families. It's your family. In, in, the, in this, this family that we're a part of, Christianity, uh, we don't get to switch families. You don't get to quit your family. A lot of people, they say this, you know, I love Jesus, but, but I don't like the church. I don't like going to church. I don't see the need to go to church or belong to a church. Like, you don't get to quit on your family. We have a family get-together every single week. We have family get-togethers that are going on in our homes and the small groups that we have. It's important to be a part of your family. You can't just say, uh, you know what, I really love my father, but I absolutely hate my brothers and sisters. They are horrible, terrible people. How does that make a parent feel when you say that? Dad, I love you, but I hate these other children of yours. But the thing that breaks my heart more than anything else is when my kids are fighting. The thing that breaks my parents' heart, now I understand that, when I'd be like, my sister's so stupid, and they're watching this right now. I never said that. This is an example. <laughs> Other people have said things like this. When I talk about how my, my sisters were stupid, or they were smelly, or whatever, they were so mean, you know what I didn't understand was that it was absolutely breaking the heart of my parents. We break the heart of our Heavenly Father when we don't love our brothers and sisters that he loves so dearly and that he gave his life for. 
You know what? Jesus knows that your spiritual brothers and sisters are messed up. You're not going to tell him something that he doesn't know or that he doesn't understand. He knows it more than anyone, and he knows how messed up you are. But he's still committed to you. And he's committed to every other brother and sister that you have, and he loves them deeply, and he loves them fiercely. And for you to have anger stirred up and to hate one of your brothers or sisters, it actually says, John wrote, and he says that if you say that you love God but that you actually hate your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're a liar. You don't really love your father if you hate your brothers and sisters. We have to have a deep commitment to each other and to this family that God has called us to. We can't be those that quit on it. We can't be those that hate each other. We can't be those that run away. I'm not saying this isn't a cult. This isn't a mafia. Like, that's not what I'm saying. It's like you can never leave Radiant Church. You got a t-shirt. You're here for life. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But you have a spiritual family that you belong to. And we're called to love each other. We have to be committed to this family. Number two, there has to be healthy confrontation in this family. The gospel itself is confrontational. You didn't become a Christian because the gospel was explained to you and you said, hey, I match up to all of this. I didn't even realize I was already a Christian. I was already following Jesus. Like, I guess I'll follow Jesus because I was already doing it. No, what happened was you heard the gospel and you said, oh my goodness, I am none of these things. Like, I, wow, I am a sinner. I'm in bondage to sin. I have rebelled against the king of all kings. I'm worthy of death. Oh my goodness, like, it's confrontational. I have to make a change in my life. The gospel by its very nature is confrontational because it says that every inclination, every desire of our sinful heart is for wrong and for destructive things. There's this popular thought in our culture that whatever you desire, you need to pursue that. If you have a desire for something, it's good for you to satisfy that desire. That is completely against the gospel. If you follow your heart in everything, it's going to lead you into absolute ruin. Like Disney, they're wrong. Don't follow your heart on everything. You need to follow after Jesus. But that also means that there's going to have to be some healthy confrontation in our family as well. You know why? Because your brothers and sisters, they're pretty messed up. I'm pretty messed up. I'm, I continue to have brokenness and sinfulness and struggles that I'm going through, and there are going to be times that I'm going to wrong you. There are going to be times that I will sin against brothers and sisters that I have, and there's going to have to be some healthy confrontation. Uh, but you have to understand the spirit behind confrontation is always for reconciliation, it's always for restoration, it's always for health, and it's always for growth. And Jesus actually spells out for us how we need to have confrontation in the church. Inside of this family, this is how we have confrontation. He says in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or as a corrupt tax collector. So here's how a conflict usually goes in the church. Like, that Sally, she's gossiping about me. She's such a gossip. Taylor, did you hear what Sally said? She's such a gossip. This is what she said. Sally's a terrible person because she's gossiping about me. I don't even think she really loves Jesus. You know, she's serving in kids' ministry. She doesn't belong there. We need to remove her. Like, that's how, like, what you do is now I'm gossiping about her. 
Like, I've committed an even worse sin than what she did. But it's a lot easier for me to do that than to go and to confront her. But what it does is instead of ever opening up the possibility of, of Sally repenting of her sin and growing and for there to be reconciliation and greater health of the church, I engage in the sin and I make it worse and I stir up more division. The easy thing to do is to go to everybody else in the entire family and tell them how horrible your sister or your brother is and they never even know that you had a problem with them. Now everybody hates Sally and she has no idea why. This is what Jesus says. He says, did someone sin against you? That's how he says out. If, if another believer sins against you, uh, that doesn't mean that they actually did. A lot of times we get offended by something and we, we like, like on our high horse against someone else and they haven't actually even sinned against us. The time when you confront someone is when they sin against you. Not if they do something that you maybe don't like or they take a liberty in Christ that you don't agree with or that you don't have a conviction of yourself. If someone unintentionally does something, like that's not when you have to go. This isn't every grievance. I have the list of it that I'm going to tell you about. This is if someone actually sins against you, then what you do is you go to them privately. You don't ignore sin. Uh, you don't run away from the confrontation because that doesn't actually help the person. What helps someone is that if they're sinning against you is that you privately go to them. You don't go to someone else. You don't go to me or another leader in the church. You don't go to any, You go to that person that has sinned against you and it says that you do it privately. Not like on Instagram, like selfie, on my way to have a confrontation with Sally Joe. <laughs> Pray for me. It says, go to them privately, and the hope is that they're going to be able to have a realization of their sin against you. They'll be able to confess, ask you for forgiveness. You will be able to forgive them, and then there's going to be restoration of the relationship. And it says that you've won them back. That's the best case scenario. That's the way that we're supposed to handle it. But if that doesn't happen, if they still don't agree with you that, yeah, I, I was wrong on that, I'm sorry. They're like, no, I don't think I did that, or I'm not willing to ask for forgiveness. Then it says what you do is you go to someone else, and you have one or two other people go with you now to meet with that person who sinned against you so that they can confirm what it was that was done. Now, you might go and, and with your friend or two, someone that's a common friend that knows you or knows the situation, explain to them. They might say, hey, actually, you know what? You're wrong on that. What they did wasn't a sin. You're just misreading the situation. And so they're like, oh. Well, thank you. Now I need to go apologize to that person for, for bringing this up. Having one or two other people that can confirm really brings health to you. Or what it will do if they say, yeah, you know what, you're right, that was wrong for that person to do that. So now the two of us or the three of us, we're going to meet together and we'll be able to confirm what it is that happened so that now the person will hopefully say, oh, you know what, I'm sorry, I didn't realize, but now I can see because you guys are pointing this out to me, explain it to me, I sinned, please forgive me. Now, if that doesn't work, you still don't go public with it. You still don't go tell everybody in the church or start to slander or gossip them. It says then you go to a leader in the church, someone that's in a position of authority who's able to go and to make a decision about the situation. Say, no, really, you did sin. You need to ask for forgiveness so that there can be a restoration, there can be reconciliation in our family. We need to restore the unity of this family, so we need you to ask for forgiveness and to actually be repentant in your heart. Hopefully that leads them to that place of where now they're going to do it. But if they don't, even in that case, then what Jesus says is to treat them like a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. What does that mean? It means that it turns out they really aren't family. It means that they really aren't your brother or sister in Christ Jesus. 
And so we treat them like a pagan or like a corrupt tax collector. Now what that means is that sometimes we have to remove them from the fellowship of the family because they aren't really family. It might mean that, hey, you were serving in different positions that you had in the church. We're going to have to remove these remove you from these positions because you're clearly not at the point of where you're able to serve because you're not a part of the family of Jesus if you're not willing to submit yourself to the authority of the family and to be able to honor each other and to ask for forgiveness and repentance when you've wronged someone. What it doesn't mean is that we go public with it still. It says treat them like a pagan. That means someone who isn't following Jesus or a corrupt tax collector. What did Jesus do to pagans and corrupt tax collectors? Did he throw rocks at them? Did he ridicule them? Did he stone? I mean, what did he do? He, he loved them. He showed grace and he showed mercy to them. He prayed for them. That they would have revelation and that they would come into the family. That's the way that we're supposed to handle confrontation inside of the church. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person come into the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. When we have confrontation with someone, it says gently and humbly do it. Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Don't make it, I told you so. The last thing anyone ever needs to hear when they're wrong about something is, I told you so. That has never once helped anybody. Be gentle and be humble. Here's the other thing that we struggle with. When we see a Christian fall or be overcome by sin, and a lot of us, myself included, sometimes what happens is you're like, I knew it. I'm not surprised. Or I'm glad it was finally exposed. Sometimes we can take joy when brothers and sisters fall because there's a hardness in our own heart against them. But what it says is that we need to gently and humbly go to someone when they're overcome by sin with the hope of restoring them. And we need to make sure that we're being careful too because that same sin that we're so glad has ensnared them that's going to snare our hearts too. One of the things that breaks my heart most is when I see pastors that have moral failures. When they have affairs and things like that. It can be really easy, like, ah, oh, I'm so, and I, I am so sick of that happening in the body of Christ. The nations blaspheme God because of the way that, that we behave and because of the things that we do. There was a time where I had to have a a conversation with someone, someone that had to be removed because I began to suspect that they were having an affair with their assistant. It turns out they really were. We had to confront the sin in their life. And I was heartbroken by it. And I went home and I said, God, guard my heart because that same sin, it draws on my heart too. And if I'm not careful... I'll commit the worst sins that anybody else has ever committed. You know why we need to be gentle and humble about the way that we confront people? It's because we're not above any of the things that they've done. It could happen to every single one of us. We need to let other people even overcome by sin, stir up gentleness and humility, to pray for restoration for them, to do everything we can to see them restored, to win back a brother or a sister, and to also build up safeguards in our own heart, not against them, but against the sin that ensnared them because it could happen to us too. That's how we have healthy confrontation 
in the church. We don't run from confrontation. We don't avoid it. We don't do it wrong. Jesus spells out for us the way that we need to have confrontation. And if you're in, in a family, you're going to have confrontation. If you're in a group, you're going to have confrontation in your group. You need to know how to do it in the right way that glorifies Jesus, that makes our family beautiful to the world that's around us, and also in a way that promotes health and unity and reconciliation amongst us. Number three, we have to forgive. We have to be those who forgive each other. We can't hold grudges. Uh, we can't have, hold, hard on, hold on to hardness in our heart. It says in Colossians 3, 12 to 13, uh, since God shows you to be a holy people, he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender heart and mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. We have to forgive each other. It says that we have to make an allowance for other people. That means that we have to understand that other people are going to sin. Other people are going to sin against us. Other people are going to wrong us. You can't go into any relationship with any person on this earth and expect perfection out of them. Only Jesus can you place that expectation on. We have to have an allowance and an understanding in every relationship we have that they're going to sin that there's going to be conflict, that they're going to wrong you, and that you're going to sin against them, and that you're going to wrong them. Now, you don't try to do that, but it's going to happen. And it says that we have to make an allowance, an understanding of that, and we need to forgive them. It doesn't say that we need to forgive them after they, after they ask us for forgiveness. It says that we need to forgive them. Well, what if they haven't asked me to forgive them? You forgive them. What if they've done it all these times. Jesus said in one parable, if your brother sins against you same, seven times, the same sin, and the same day, you have to forgive him seven times. Seven's the number of completion, meaning what if they just keep doing this, the same stupid thing, over and over and over and over again? He says, you forgive them over and over and over and over again, just like I forgave you. The way that we're supposed to forgive others is the way that Jesus forgave us. Now, what I'm not saying is that you don't begin to establish boundaries in that relationship. If your spouse keeps cheating on you, Eventually, it gets to the point of where you're like, I can still love you, I can still forgive you for what it is that you've done, but now I have to put this boundary in here because it's not healthy. And what's going to bring health to me and to you even and to the church is for there to have to be this boundary that's been established that has to be respected. But you can still forgive them no matter what it is that they've done to you. Even before they ask for forgiveness, even if they never ask for forgiveness, because Jesus died for you and forgave you before you ever asked for forgiveness from him. That's tough. That is a hard teaching. But it's the only way this family works, is that we have to love like Jesus, we have to forgive like Jesus, and can you do that of your own strength and ability? Absolutely not. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit inside of your heart. If you're having trouble forgiving someone, here's what I do. God, would you remind me of what you forgave me of? Ooh. God, would you supernaturally give me the ability to forgive them? Holy Spirit, I need your power in my life to be able to forgive them. Uh, Dr. Cho, I love him. Guy prays over four hours a day. Someone asked him, why do you pray so much? He said, oh, because I have so many people to forgive. <laughs> I love that. Having trouble forgiving someone? Spend some time with Jesus. Number four, think of others more than yourself. Philippians 2.3 says, do, not, or, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Moms are the best example of this. My wife doesn't sleep, generally doesn't eat. Like if she gets a shower in on a day, she's like, I feel selfish. I spent so much time on me today. 
Because what she, she's not concerned about her own needs. She's concerned about the needs of her children. And she sacrifices herself for them. Listen, that's what we need to do. That's how we're called to love each other. In our relationships, it's not about how are you going to serve me and my needs, how am I going to get my needs met. In our relationships, it's what is it that you need? How can I serve you? I need to think more highly of you than I'm thinking of myself. I had a thought, and it's completely gone. Ah, here it is. Siblings, they're either going to contend against each other or they're going to contend for each other. You'll either end up fighting with your siblings because you're trying, you think more highly of yourself than you think of them, or you think your needs are greater than their needs, so you'll fight against them, or you're going to contend for them so that they can be built up, so that their needs can be met, so that you can be a part of loving and ministering them and building them up like Jesus does. In this family, we have to think less of ourselves and more of others. Uh, number five, we have to be merciful. Luke 36 says this, be merciful just as your father is merciful. God could have given you justice. He could have given you what it is that you deserve, but he didn't. Instead, he gave you mercy. He gave you the thing that you didn't deserve. And God calls us to do the same to each other. In our culture, uh, we're, we're big on justice when it's about somebody else. Uh, like We want to see justice poured out on them. But when it comes to us, like, please have mercy on me. Like, don't give me what I deserve. Just give everybody else what they deserve. Jesus says, I didn't give you what you deserved. You deserved wrath. You deserved judgment. But I gave you mercy. Jesus even says, talking about the Old Testament system of sacrifice, is that I desired mercy over judgment. What's your desire? For yourself, you want mercy. You don't want other people to judge you. Like in our culture, they only know one verse in the Bible, and it's like, don't judge. And then they judge every other person. We don't need to judge each other. We need to confront each other in sin. But we don't need to be those who are just wanting to pour out justice on each other. We need to be those who want to pour out mercy, just like we've deserved mercy. The last thing in this world that I want is what I deserve. I don't want to give any of you what you deserve either. Jesus gave me mercy. We need to extend mercy to each other. And number six, this is how I'll close, is we need to call out the best in others. Our culture specializes in finding faults and calling out faults and flaws in each other. We look for them. What, like news organizations, they spend their entire, they have teams of people who are trying to dig up dirt and to find fault and to find ways to disqualify people from what it is they're doing. They want to tear people down. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't expose the faults and the flaws for other people. He doesn't try to disqualify you. Jesus calls out the things that are hidden inside of you. This is what he, I love. This is the story of Gideon. He's the biggest loser in the Bible. Like he admits, Gideon says, I'm the biggest loser. It's a time when Israel's been overrun by their enemies. Gideon's hiding out in a cave and he's coming out at nighttime into a, 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 wine, a press that's in the ground to grind his grain, hidden at night so that the enemies can't see him. So he's sitting there, you know, like a little mouse, like, 
looking around. And it says, an angel of the Lord appears before him and says, O mighty man of God. Gideon's like, no. No, you don't understand. I'm not a mighty man of God. I'm from the least tribe in all of Israel. Not only am I from the least tribe, but I'm from the least family in all of Israel. Not only am I from the least family in all of Israel, but I am the least of all of the sons in this family. He's saying, I am the loser of the losers. There's nobody that's a bigger loser than me in this entire nation. I'm no mighty man of God. But God looks at him, and he doesn't try to disqualify him because of who he is or because of what he's done. He looks at him, and he calls out the best in him. Almighty man of God. When we look at each other, are we going to look at the faults and the flaws? Are we going to look at the reasons we should try to disqualify someone? Or are we going to look at our brothers and our sisters and say, Almighty man, Almighty woman of God, arise. Are we going to call out that prophetic destiny that's been hidden inside of every one of our hearts? The reason that I'm here and I'm doing what I am doing today is because there were people who looked at me and they saw every fault, they saw every flaw, every insecurity, they saw every reason why I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing, but they called something else out of me. I wouldn't be doing this if there weren't people who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. That's what we're called to do for each other. It's the way that Jesus operates. It's the way that we've been called to operate as a family. <clears throat> you guys stand with me tonight, this morning. <clears throat> there was another time that Jesus called someone out. It was when he went to the tomb of Lazarus comes to the tomb of a man who's been dead for three days. And he comes to the tomb and he speaks to Lazarus. He says, come out. There's never been a more impossible situation that existed. Lazarus was dead and they tried to warn Jesus not to remove this tomb. They actually said, like, he stinketh much or something like that in the King James. They're like, Jesus, like, No. But Jesus still rolls away the stone. He speaks into death itself. He says, come out. This morning, some of you, you find yourselves in a tomb. Bondage to sin. You find yourselves in bondage to, to hurt. Unforgiveness. Doubt. Fear. You find yourselves in impossible situations and places where you say, I'm disqualified from what it is that God's called me to do. I'm disqualified from God's love. I'm disqualified from God's purpose for my life. But what you need to know is that for every tomb that you might find yourself in, Jesus comes and he rolls away the stone and he speaks to you saying, come out. And he restores life back to that which is dead. That's how great his love is and that's how great his power is for you. 
And maybe you're here this morning, and a part of the tomb that you find yourself in is the inability to love other people, the inability to be a part of this family that God has called you to. And he's speaking to you this morning, and he's saying, come out. Maybe this morning you found yourself in a sin that you've been trying to overcome, but you just keep being overcome by it. This morning, Jesus is speaking to you in the midst of that tomb and that bondage to sin, and he's saying, come out by my power. You're dead in sin. You can do nothing to bring life to yourself, but this morning, I'm speaking to you, arise, I'm breathing life back into you, and I'm calling you out of that place. This morning, you might be living in a a tomb of condemnation and of guilt and of shame, and it's caused death inside of you, and Jesus is speaking into it, and he's removing shame, he's removing guilt, he's calling you out of the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and into his mercy and into his love. This morning, he says to you, come out. Maybe this morning, you're in that place of where you've never followed Jesus. You've never decided that you were going to bend the knee and make him the Lord of your life. You're not just going to believe that he's God or, or believe that he died on a cross for your sins and that there's forgiveness for you now. But God, I believe in you and I trust you so much that I'm going to follow after you. I'm going to let you reorganize my life. I'm going to let you change everything about me I'm going to let you bring new life into me. But you're living in the tomb. You're not there yet. You're still living in death. And this morning, Jesus is speaking to you, and he's saying, come out. Come out. Come into the new life that I have for you. Come, be a subject of my kingdom. Come, receive the blessings that I have for you. Come, receive the reward that I have for you. Come and be my son. Come and be my daughter. This morning, Jesus is speaking to you. Come out. Lazarus still had to take the steps. Jesus worked the miracle of life. Lazarus still had to walk out of that tomb. It's time to get out. Jesus for every heart that's here. Every heart that you're speaking to. God, stir up the miracle so that they can come out. Jesus, I pray for a new life. God, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to stir up a fire inside of their hearts for you that can never be quenched, that can never be denied. Jesus, a new love and a new passion for you in their hearts that's going to lead them to the place of obedience. Jesus, new love inside of them that's going to give them the ability and the conviction to love the other members of this family. Jesus, new power in your Holy Spirit to put their faith in you for the salvation and to make you Lord. Jesus, work that miracle in our hearts this morning call the best out of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to have my prayer partners come forward. They're going to be on the outsides in the front here. If there's anything we can pray for you about this morning, we would love to pray for you. Uh, Maybe Jesus is speaking. Come out this morning and you've made that decision. Come, share that with us. Let us know how we can encourage you. Let us pray encouragement over you. Let us agree with you on what it is that Jesus has done. Maybe you just need to share what it is that Jesus is doing in your heart. 
Maybe this morning you decided that you wanted to follow after Jesus. Come, let us talk to you. Start a conversation. Or, or maybe you don't quite have the courage yet to do that. We have another option for you is that you can just text in to 97,000, I decided. And when you text that in, what we do is we have a, a free book for you that we want to give you to help you get going in this new relationship and this new journey that you're, you're making with Jesus. Uh, we just want to be able to connect with you and encourage you in some way. So come, meet us up here. Let us talk to you, pray for you, text us. I decided at 97,000, whatever it is that you need to do. But just let us know somehow so that we can encourage you and come alongside you in this decision that you've made. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Let us pray for you. Go eat some, not eat some, we don't have anything to eat. Go drink some coffee, make some friends, and we'll see you next week. God bless. <laughs>